I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The COVID-19 pandemic provided a painful reminder of the global need to protect people against the threat of existing and emerging infectious diseases. Emergex Vaccines is developing fully synthetic vaccines that provide advantages over live attenuated and RNA-based vaccines. The company says they can provide long-lasting T-cell immunity, are cost-effective, and stable at room temperature. We spoke to Thomas Rademacher, co-founder and CEO of Emergex Vaccines, about the company's platform technologies, the manufacturing advantages they offer, and the company's pursuit of universal coronavirus and influenza vaccines that work across variants. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. I look, look forward to having this discussion today. We're going to talk about infectious diseases, Emergex vaccines, and its platform technology to use synthetic peptides to develop broad and lasting immune responses. We're seeing the emergence of infectious diseases in areas that they haven't been before. We're also seeing emerging viruses in populations that have never seen these before and where vaccines are not generally available. Perhaps you can start with the broader trends. What's driving them and why the experience with COVID-19, rather than being a once in a hundred year occurrence, might represent the types of threats we may need to be better prepared to address? I'm actually, um, thank you for that uh, question. And it, it's, it's, it's a rather interesting, uh, I think, starting point because the, I think there is somewhat of an assumption in this uh, uh, world where we're a little bit worried about preparedness now and the next thing around the corner. I think there's a, a little misconception. Um, while there are statistics that say that you know, we're going to be overwhelmed by zoonoses, and this is where a virus moves from a um, some other uh, vector, say from an insect or from an animal and into humans. In actual fact, is um, I went on the uh, looking the, up this recently, and I don't think. That's really the situation. I think people a lot are saying is, is we need to be prepared for such a thing happening. But I actually can't give you a, a really a strong example of something new, which is all of a sudden appearing and causing a problem. Because if you look into the literature, for example, we say, oh, there was this big issue with Zika. But if you look in the, the medical literature, the scientific literature, people were studying Zika 20 years ago, for example. So it was known and it, it had a Name. So I think, yes, there are cases where obviously mosquitoes don't know borders and are moving there. But I don't 
quite really see at this point in time a massive influx of new viruses moving into the what's called the uh, in, into these zoonoses. I think we're left with the same at the moment. We're left pretty much with the same old nasties we haven't been able to deal with uh, to begin with. Um, uh, dengue, for example, is a good one, and even influenza uh, and. Uh, illnesses such as that. So I don't think, I think the, to me, the big worry here is what happens to these which have already learned how to, uh, let's cut, say, colonize uh, within humans. Uh, viruses to a large extent are pretty species specific, I have to say, uh, and they tend not to want to move from A to B, I have to say, and there's a whole as you can imagine, there's a whole uh, literature uh, on why that it doesn't happen. It's called the, what's called the bottleneck theory. That is, there's a real bottleneck in moving from uh, from a from a ferret to a human, or from uh, from from a, a tick or a fly, from a sandfly to a human. So we've got human viruses which we've learned to deal with, and a few more where, yeah, okay, we went where we shouldn't have gone. And, but even there, I mean, bats, we talk about bat caves and uh, viruses coming out of bats, but bats have been, we joke, they've been in belfries for a long time. So it's not like all of a sudden they're coming out of the caves uh, to, to get us. So but I think the, the COVID-19 in many ways had a lot of, let's call it uh, geopolitical uh, issues uh, around it. Uh, and we say, was COVID uh, or coronavirus, was that really a one in a hundred year occurrence? There has been seven known um, coronaviruses which, which have uh, joined in, into man, um, really in the last, I think it's the last hundred years. Uh, and a lot of the other ones are far more um, nasty than, uh, than the COVID or the COVID-19. MERS, for example, uh, had a mortality you know, rate of around uh, 40%. Uh, the SARS-1 that came around in Hong Kong and Southeast Asia was something like 19%. And I think the estimated uh, mortality of the SARS-2 is something around 4%. So we've had, we've had, uh, we've had bigger nasties uh, appear on, uh, in, in, on, on a fairly regular cycle. On the other hand, going to the once in a hundred year uh, concept, um, it's most people, I think, don't realize that um, pandemic flu re-attacks uh, re about every 50 years. We're not sure why, but it's got a 50-year cycle. So you had 1918, then just post-war, 1947-49, and then again in 2009. And that's when that is pretty like pretty much like clockwork, I have to say. Uh, and why a 50-year cycle? I don't know, um, but um, there is this interesting idea that after 50 years, the the old viruses run out of people to newly infect. There is what's called herd immunity, or there's immunity in the population, and it sort of has to start over. So I'm not really uh, I'm not a worry person that tomorrow something from uh, some obscure virus from a sand fly or something is going to uh, come and get us. I think these are it's a pretty rare event uh, when it does happen. How well served are we by existing vaccine technology? So if we look at this, and I always say we have to separate, a lot of people get a little bit confused about what we talk about with a vaccine. So, for example, um, uh, we get a tetanus vaccine. And then you say, well, is that actually to, and that's to a bacteria. 
tetanus is a bacteria. Is it to the bacteria? No, it's actually to tetanus toxin. It's actually to the toxin. So you get injected with an inactivated form of the toxin. Um, it doesn't prevent you from getting tetanus, but it prevents the uh, tetanus from causing uh, an illness. Diphtheria is the same thing. It's against diphtheria toxin. So a lot of the vaccines that we think of in, in general terms, really are what's called an antitoxins, if you want to look at it that way, something against cholera toxin or something uh, like that. So I think one has to put that aside. There's, ob there's obviously a confusion, uh, I think, against in, in the lay population uh, about what actually uh, a vaccine constitutes. Then you have what I call the vaccines, I say the vaccines that work. And most of the world's nasties are made up are basically are RNA viruses. There's obviously DNA viruses and there's RNA viruses. And RNA viruses are the ones that come in and cause the acute illness that can kill you, but they tend not to be chronic. But these are the ones we talk about, Ebola, uh, dengue, Zika, Japanese encephalitis viruses, all the things we sort of talk about all the time really are RNA uh, uh, viruses. And they are really unique in the sense that they are uh, a swarm. There's no such thing. I would say to people, there was never anything such as the Wuhan variant. The Wuhan variant is a mathematical summary of all of the subspecies. They're called quasi-species. So these things exist as clouds, and that's how they function. On the other hand, a DNA uh, virus is a single defined species, like we would think of. It's a single defined um, illness. So what we have to learn to deal with, therefore, is how do we vaccinate against a cloud of viruses, which are very dispersed. They're all different. And the way we did it without knowing we were doing it was to generate what we call live attenuated vaccines. So yellow fever. 1922, polio in the 1950s, and right up to, I have to say, 1977 is actually when mumps came in, uh, but measles in the 60s and uh, rubella, whatever it is. These were live attenuated vaccines, and they are the only things that have ever been shown to work against RNA viruses. And of course, for a long time, nobody really quite knew why they worked other than they worked. And so in many ways, these uh, live attenuated, they're the ones that are what we most the public, I think, really thinks of as vaccines. And if we get a polio vaccine, we don't expect to have to get a booster every six months, whatever it is. We expect it to be there for 25, 30 years, if not our whole life. The same with smallpox. We expect it to be there uh, the whole life. And the problem there is that since we didn't understand how these things worked and they were all sort of like, uh, sort of, let's call it uh, these um, discoveries on the, on, on the side, we were left in real limbo probably since the early 1970s up to the present date in how to make vaccines. Um, as you know, what, although ever since the emergence of HIV, Nobody ever made a vaccine. There is no Ebola vaccine out there. There's something that you can give to people after they catch Ebola, uh, which reduces the ability, uh, the degree degree of uh, illness. But we still don't have a vaccine that will prevent that. So there has been a tremendous failure 
I have to say, in vaccine development, probably for the last uh, 30 to 40 years. Uh, and that's why things really, uh, I have to say, got out a little bit out of hand with the COVID-19. Uh, COVID and of course, a lot of people were there were going back. As you remember, there was the SARS-1. Nobody was ever even able to make a vaccine against the SARS-1, uh, which appeared in 2003, all the way up to present day. There is no SARS-1 vaccine that actually does anything uh, or, or works. So there is a huge deficiency in current vaccine technology, uh, which needed sorting, I have to say. Well, what happens when a virus infects a cell, how does the immune system know to target these cells? Okay, so this is this is this is critical uh, uh, to the the whole development of of a vaccine and even how live attenuated vaccines work. Viruses are kind of strange in the sense you usually get one virus will attack a cell. So one virus will go inside of that cell and it has to go inside of that cell, especially the RNA viruses. It's got just it's just going to be one of the swarm, for example, and it's got to remake a swarm to cause an illness. By the way, they work cooperatively together. But as soon as they go in, for example, they have to start making the building blocks to make a new virion. So transmission is, by definition, the point at which an infected cell produces more virus. That's 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 really in biological terms what transmission is. We people talk about it loosely as transmitting it from person A to B, but that's not what it's about. It's the transmission from an initially infected cell into a bunch of other cells. Now we've got to make all those building blocks. You got you know the thing doesn't just sort of make itself over uh, instantly. It takes about. 18 to 20 hours, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little shorter, for the um, virus to reproduce itself and make all the bricks and mortar and everything else is to make a new virion. So that's its main Achilles heel, is that if you can kill that viral infected cell in what's called the eclipse phase. The eclipse phase is the time when a single virus enters a cell until the point that it produces more virus. That takes time to do. But if you kill the virus during that period of time, that's called an abortive infection. You have no transmission. You got infected, but you didn't transmit it on. Now, from within minutes of that cell being infected, it's already marked for death. So as soon as the, uh, even before any proteins are made or anything like that, there's what's called uh, the, the mRNA, which is making these all these proteins and bits and things like that, gets edited. You have an editing system in your cell. And it makes peptides, small little peptides from these, uh, uh, from the actual viral uh, mRNA. Uh, and those uh, appear on the surface of an infected cell and they displace the self-peptides. And as you know, the self-peptides are the things that make us what we are individually, which is why we can't do transplants. So we have all these self-peptides, up to 2 billion of them on the surface of a cell. Now, all of a sudden, we've got some peptides there that are not self. They come from the virus. And so that cell, infected cell, from within five minutes of infection, is already therefore foreign to the body. It's targeted and it will be killed. And the thing that killed 
will kill that cell is what are called your CD8 T cells. So the immune system has to deal with these swarms of viruses, obviously, by not looking at the virus itself, because the swarms are all different, but by looking at the infected cell. So it never targets the virus. It targets the infected cell, which it thinks is a transplant. As far as it's concerned, it's from somebody else. In other words, it's simply a foreign cell. And we reject that cell the same way we would reject um, uh, 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 um, um, a um, a transplant, for example. And that's what's called, that's called cellular immunity, CD8 T cell cellular immunity. In a natural infection, it takes about uh, six, eight days for your T cell army to be generated. So during the first six and eight days, there's this war going on. But let's put it this way. When your innate immune system is trying to keep this all under control before the T cells come in and can annihilate and kill off the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the infected cell. So there's this race against time. In most people, we win the race. In other people, we lose the race and they go on and get sick. And therefore, and they get sick. But most people, 99% of the time, the infection is held in check. But the important point here is it takes eight days to create your T-cell army in order to kill this cell, which was labeled for death within minutes of the initial infection. So the whole basis of T-cell vaccination is to have the army there before the infection. So therefore, you've got your T-cell army. It knows what to look for, if you know how to do it. And as soon as a flu comes in or COVID or whatever you want, yellow fever, as soon as something gets infected, it's there on day zero, minute zero, and it can kill the viral infected cell before it produces any progeny. And that is how the live attenuated vaccines uh, work. And it's a brilliant, brilliant system. Well, let's talk about the Emergex vaccines technology. You're developing vaccines that are designed to produce both a, a broad and long-lasting immune response. There are two technologies here. The first of these is a library of pathogen-derived protein fragments. How did you build this library and what does it consist of? This is exactly going back to my, my previous statement is in a natural infection, therefore, there is what's called a viral signature. It's a ligandome. And this occurs in the human body. So there are certain peptides which are generated that uh, tell you that come from flu if you're infected with flu. And there's a different set of peptides which come from, say, COVID or from Ebola, whatever it is. And these are the targets. These are the targets uh, on the, the um, on your HLA of the infected cell that your T cells are going to look for. If they see those targets on there, they will kill the infected cell. So the first thing, if you want to make a vaccine, therefore, to kill the cell as soon as it gets infected and these targets appear, you have to know what the targets are. Now, people for many, many, many years have tried to use computers to predict what these signals would be. In other words, what constant, what is the signature of dengue? What's the signature of Zika? And the computing has failed because you can only, obviously the computing is only good as the information you provide. So what we do is we empirically 
determine the signature. And to do that, we have to actually take a human cell and we have to infect it. And then we measure and we have to extract from these molecules or from the class one molecules uh, in, uh, on the cell. We have to actually extract uh, this um, signature. Uh, and then we have to take th those peptides and we have to use very high level mass spectrometry uh, and determine the viral signature. Let's put it that way. So we know what the human body sees as flu. There's a group of peptides tells the body you've got flu. There's a different set that tells the body you've got dengue, for example. And once you know those, you now know how to make a vaccine. Because if you can then train your T cells to uh, be experienced, to want to kill those type of things, uh, then you, you're, you're, you're home free. So the first real important aspect of emergence technology was to be able to define the what's called the ligandome or the signature for each individual virus. And we've done that for about 11 different viruses, for example, uh, yellow fever, uh, dengue, hepatitis, that we've done this. So we know what their signature is. The second bit, then is you needed to be able to use that information and basically what's called it vaccinate the um, uh, the human in order to generate a t-cell army that will be there already uh, at the time of an infection the third thing that was required however it was actually very very subtle is that um, you, if you vaccinate somebody with a t-cell army you have to know where the t-cells go only about 1% of our T cells are in the blood. People get very, very confused. The CD8 T cell system is a tissue-based system. These T cells are all in your tissues. They're in your liver, they're in your lungs, they're in your skin, whatever it is. They live there because that is the entry points for a viral infection. Entry points for viral infections aren't your blood, it's you breathing it in your nose or getting a mosquito bite in your skin. So the T-cell army you generate has to be called resident, T-resident cells. They have to be in the lungs. Um, example, for example, giving you an example there, if I had only, say, T-cells that wanted to kill flu-infected uh, uh, cells, and they were only in my blood, and I breathe, uh, would inhale um, uh, flu, it would obviously get into my lungs and it would affect my lungs. But if the T cells were only in my blood, the T cells would then enter after I had the infection. So they're there now already. They've got a, they're losing the battle because the virus has already infected my lungs. And now my T cells have got to go in there as an afterthought to try and do that. On the other hand, if you have T resident cells already in your lungs or in the airways, it prevents the actual flu virus from entering the lungs and stays and kills them off in the bronchiole, and you don't get um, uh, and you don't get flu. So resident T cells are a critical component. And prior to what we did, nobody had been able to generate resident tissue resident T cells via systemic vaccination. And the trick to that, which we discovered, was to vaccinate into the epidermis of the skin. So the next thing that had to be developed is what's called micro, the microneedle technology got evolved, where you could actually now 
immunize or vaccinate into the epidermis, not the dermis, but the epidermis, the thin little layer just below the surface of the skin. It's actually considered an organ, by the way, and there's fluid movement in there, and that's directly connected to our lymph nodes. So if you vaccinate into the skin, interestingly enough, your vaccination goes into the draining lymph nodes, and you basically vaccinate straight into your lymphoid system. And if you do that, you generate what are called tissue resident um, uh, uh, memory T cells, which are what are required um, for, for, for vaccination. So in summary, a number of things that have happened in the last five to 10 years have made immunology 101 possible. So everything I have just said is immunology 101. Everybody that takes immunology knows exactly what I've just said. The question was, is how do you, how do, you um, do it in real life? So first of all, high-level, magnificent um, uh, creation of very high-level, high-sensitivity mass spectrometers. That was absolutely critical to being able to work out the, um, uh, the actual viral signatures. Uh, then you had to have a, a delivery system, uh, which came out of nanotechnology. In other words, how do you put these codes? Because you have to send them off into the thing uh, or into the, the skin. And then finally, the microneedle technology to do that. So there's a culmination of major technical advances, which has allowed us actually to do immunology 101 for the first time. You're using synthetic peptides. What's the case for synthetic peptides? Well, it, it's, it's that, well, no, all peptides are, of course, uh, that you make uh, are what we call them synthetic. And I think we're only the, obviously they're made in a machine. So I think the reason we're using the word synthetic is that we don't use any biological components. So these vaccines are actually 100% synthetic. They're, they're made in a chemical reactor. They don't require, they have no RNA in them, no DNA in them. They don't require cell um, uh, culture, anything like that. These are 100% synthetic chemistry. Let's just put it that way. So there's, it gets around all the complications of, uh, uh, of that. And that, of course, reduces their cost enormously. In other words, you don't need a $400 million plant to make these vaccines. You can make them in a porta cabin. In other words, because they're, 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 they're just, they're basically synthetic chemistry. But I mean, basically the peptides are made in a, in, in a machine uh, and then they're put on the, on the stuck onto the, the, the carrier, the delivery system. Uh, and basically they're, 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 they're injected then by a microneedle technology uh, in, into the skin. So I, I only, the word synthetic we use only to differentiate that they're not a biologic. This is a, this is a, well, look at this. This is a drug. If you want to look at it that way, it's a drug that programs your T cell to do certain functions and certain things. I, I take it though, beyond the cost advantage, there's advantages to both scalability and, and, and transportability of these vaccines. Yeah, the vaccines, of course, that's where it started out. The scalability is unlimited. They're just how many reactors do you want to, to, to do? Uh, and second of all, the vaccines, which are basically are synthetic compounds, if you want to uh, look at them in that sense, uh, don't require a cold chain. Uh, 
so they don't have to keep it in a refrigerator. They're not going to go off. There's all kinds of huge advantages uh, to doing that because in a sense, what we're doing is simply um, it's, it's the, um, I think it's important to understand what exactly is happening. Um, you, uh, T cells are the, the T cells that you have uh, in your body were created, um, what's called stochastically, randomly, up to the involution of your thymus. So, up to that time, your uh, thymus was generating at random various T cell specificities. Now, some of those will be against dengue and some against Zika and some against flu, whatever it is. Even though the body has never seen any of these things, the body has to generate all of these possibilities that it may see in its lifetime. In other words, that's what it has to do. This is totally different from the B cell system, which is able to respond to something foreign and create something to match that foreignness. You are thrown a set of dice when you are uh, young and you create a uh, repertoire of T cells. And these are, they're called naive T cells, and they're just sitting there, but they're already have specificity. So you've got some against dengue and you've got some against Zika, whatever it is. And they're just waiting in the wings to do something. So all we do is turn them on. In other words, it, there's no infection here, whatever it is. So simply, we're going to take the T-cell army that we want to go after dengue, and we're going to turn it on. So they've now gone from their resting state to a state where they're ready to kill a viral infected cell. Now, if they never see a viral infected cell in their entire lifetime, it's so what? On the other hand, you've got an army there ready to go in on day zero, if you ever get bit by a mosquito, uh, to, to kill off that dengue infection before it, it, it spreads. So this is a very, it's a very interesting concept that everybody has thrown a set of dice. Uh, and that set of dice, I mean, it's, it's different between identical twins. It's just because it's generated randomly. So therefore, it's, it's, it's just important to understand that that's the way, uh, you know, the T-cell system works. Uh, and you have holes in the system. You may not have to all the, these different peptides, but it's, it's um, very, very different than the antibody system, which is adaptive to uh, the insult. Uh, let's put it this way. It can create new specificities. The T-cell system, you've got what you've got. They're yours, your set of dice. What's known about how effective this is at priming the immune system? You can measure it very easily. So, I mean, in fact, we can do the experiment in a test tube. Uh, so we can take someone's uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells, and that contains all the stuff that actually vaccinates you. Now, as you can vaccinate in blood if you want. It's got blood has got what are called dendritic cells and, and naive T cells or whatever it is. So you can actually throw the, our vaccine into the blood and you can wait and it'll turn on these naive T cells if there's something that matches. So if we throw in, you know, peptide X against dengue and there happens to be a T cell that represents peptide X against dengue, it will be activated. Now, then we say, how do we know that will do anything is because we can then take those T cells very nicely in the, in the blood and we can put in some dengue infected cells. So we can take dengue infected cells and we can look to see if your T cells will kill the dengue infected cells. So we validate our vaccines 
actually by showing the vaccine will kill the viral infected cell. This is an extremely, extremely powerful aspect of this technology, is that you can actually demonstrate whether your vaccine will work, essentially, in the test tube. So you're only left with the question is, is, is whether or not in, in a wide population, in other words, you know, how many is, is person X army going to good enough compared to person Y army of T cells, whatever it is. You can't do that, for example, with antibodies. All antibodies do is make some antibodies, but you can't tell whether they'll have any efficacy. So the, you have a real um, insight into whether your uh, vaccine will work. The second thing that we do is we can go into people who have already had, for example, dengue and recovered, or people who have had uh, Zika and recovered. And we can ask them, because those people should now have immunity. Most of those people will now have immunity for life. Uh, they'll have a memory system. They'll have T-cell system. All those people who had SARS-1 in 2003, still 25, 30 years later, still had T-cells against the original SARS-1. They were still protected. And you can go there and you can ask, uh, um, are the, the, the T-cells that I want to make, I want to make the same ones that are there 25 or 30 years <laughs> earlier from somebody who had a natural infection is protected because then you're getting a clue that the T-cell army that you're doing is going to give you lifetime protection. In vaccinology, we talk about lifetime protection is around 25 years or more. So basically lifetime protection. None of this, you have to give every six months or whatever it is. People have known for smallpox, I think people have shown up to about 40 or 50 years, they still have T-cell protection against smallpox. So these things are memory, long-lived, and that's what we generate, long-lived army. You're developing a universal coronavirus and a universal influenza vaccine. How are you able to make a universal vaccine that works across variants? Because there's um, uh, the, so let me say, for example, let's just give the example, dengue. Uh, dengue is a, a flavivirus, okay? Uh, uh, and there are 66 flaviviruses, okay? Now, there's a reason why they're all called Flaviviruses, obviously. <laughs> in other words, because they all have bits in common between them. In other words, they all, you know, they're all slightly different. So it sort of gives them their different name. And uh, so Zika is a flavivirus. Yellow fever is a flavivirus. Dengue one, two, three, and four are a flavivirus. In other words, there's all of these things. So if you go down to the Amazon, actually, nobody, if somebody comes down, I've got dengue, you actually don't know. It could be any of these things. The point is that. By and large, there is common elements within the virus, which is why we call it, say, flaviviruses. And the T-cell system looks at the common bits between these things. So obviously, in natural immunity, uh, we've always known if you get immune to uh, X, you then get cross-reactive immunity to Y. We, we've known that uh, for a long time, that these things, you, get, you do that. So the, 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 the vaccines themselves, therefore, are against families of viruses. In other words, so although at the moment we've, uh, we call our dengue vaccine a dengue vaccine, 
it will work probably for who knows, a half a dozen, 20 or 30 or who knows how many. The computers predict it. You'd have to actually test it. Uh, it could work for all the flaviviruses. The same way with flu, influenza, it's influenza A. And influenza A can be, we talk about different influenza, but I mean, but that's just stereotyping. H1N1, that's just the outside. The inside's the bloody same. Uh, H2N3, H, H5N7. In other words, you have a lot of the, uh, the internal components of these viruses are the same. So whereas an antibody is limited to looking at what's on the outside, into the serotypes, which can change. So H1N1 has got a different outside than H2N3, but the inside is the same. And it's the T cells because they don't look at the virus at all. They never look at the virus. They only look at the virus as it's being made inside an infected cell. So therefore, these uh, when we looked at these things, uh, they of course cover, as far as I can tell, um, all of the um, uh, the flu variants that you uh, go around. When we did our corona vaccine, we actually uh, tested it against SARS-1. It worked beautifully against, uh, so it works against SARS-1 and SARS-2, and it couldn't care less whether something is Amicron or Delta. It's not relevant to the, uh, the T-cell system. Many of the diseases you're targeting have a much higher burden in developing countries. How cost-effective is the technology, and would there be adequate infrastructure in developing countries to, to use these? Yes. So um, I think we have done, uh, we've done uh, a, a very, very large deal. Uh, recently uh, with the Latinx, Brazil leading the way with the Latinx countries. Uh, and and precisely for the reason that you have said, these vaccines are easily easy to distribute uh, and uh, don't require, as I say, necessarily high levels of, of cold chain, uh, can probably be given uh, as patches, as microneedle patches. You don't need even syringes and probably not even healthcare workers and can be done at a cost which is not going to break the bank of a developing country. Now, what I mean by that is very, very important. Um, when the um, uh, when the original Ebola uh, outbreak came around, which is that's sort of when uh, Emergex was was formed, um, the there was a couple of the big farmers who went in to try and make an Ebola vaccine. Uh, they spent vast amounts of money. But by the time they got around to having an Ebola vaccine that could be tested, Ebola had gone away. They sealed the borders of Sierra Leone, whatever it is. In actual fact, there was nobody to test the vaccine on. So they spent hundreds of millions making a vaccine, in which then there was nobody to test the efficacy on because the epidemic had gone away. And this gave rise to the concept that you have to have vaccines for a lot of these nasties prior to the epidemic, such that at the time of the epidemic, you already have them and you can roll them out and see if they worked. So, for example, um, we had, interestingly enough, we had uh, offered to make a, uh, before the COVID-19, uh, we had offered to make a SARS-1 vaccine uh, for our use out in Southeast Asia. Interestingly enough, they had no interest in it because they didn't think it was going to come back. But the point here is if you're going to have what's called preparedness, that means you have to be able to have some of these vaccines sitting in a freezer. 
And nobody is going to, certainly Big Pharma, spend $100 million making some vaccine, which will sit in a freezer just in case there's going to be an outbreak. And I used to joke, and then WHO will come along and say, you give it to us free. So there was a, a huge financial uh, uh conundrum here. And of course, CEPI was then formed by the Gates and other people to undergo this preparedness idea initially to have vaccines ready to be wheeled out at the time of the epidemic such that it could be uh, tested. That financially unless you could change the way vaccines was made didn't didn't was didn't work. On the other hand, we can make vaccines at a cost such that it doesn't break the bank to have 10 million doses or 20 million doses sitting there uh, in a freezer, uh, whatever it is, ready to be wheeled out for healthcare workers, critical, you know, critical uh, members, emergency use, and et cetera, in, in a thing, if in the event of, a, of an outbreak. So it's a game changer in the sense of uh, preparedness, where you can afford to have these vaccines, uh, and not just in the U.S., but in all these developed countries, ready to be wheeled out against various things that may have a very low probability, going back to your original question, a uh, low probability of reoccurring. For example, right now, there's very little Zika floating around. So should countries that have had Zika in the past have 20 million doses sitting away in a repository? Our vaccines are affordable and can sit there and then you, and they got a long half life and can sit there in a freezer. So I think it's extremely important. That's one of the major changes these type of vaccines do that they can be um, uh, part of a, of a preparedness repository concept. Let's put it that way without breaking the bank. Thomas Rademacher, co-founder and CEO of EmergeX Vaccines. Thomas, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, thank you very much. I hope that was, uh, I, I, hope, I hope I got a few messages across. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.